Migration Conversations is a podcast that invites persons to share their migration stories. Hosted by myself, Professor Jamie Liu, each episode is an in-depth conversation with people who have experienced the Canadian immigration system or other migration regimes up close. We talk to migrants, immigrants, lawyers, policymakers, advocates, and experts. We hope that these conversations shed light on the challenges migrants face through their own voices. Welcome everyone. On today's episode, we will be talking about refugee resettlement in Canada. And to talk about this from a historical and from a contemporary perspective, we'll be talking to one of the key players in launching parts of this program 40 years ago. My guest today is Mike Malloy. Mike Malloy served as coordinator of the Middle East Peace Process at the Department of Foreign Affairs from 2000 to 2003 and was previously Ambassador of Canada to Jordan. During a long career at the Department of Immigration, Mike was involved firsthand in the Czech and Ugandan refugee movements, oversaw the implementation of the refugee provisions of the 1976 Immigration Act, and coordinated the resettlement of 60,000 Indo-Chinese refugees in Canada in 1979 to 1980. He has served in Japan, Lebanon, Minneapolis, Geneva, Jordan two times, Syria, Kenya, and was the Director General of Citizenship and Immigration in Ontario. Welcome, Mike. Thank you so much for making time for us today. Before we begin, I wanted to ask if you had any advice for students wanting to pursue a career in public service and the Foreign Service. Now, many of the listeners of this podcast are students, and I'm sure many are wondering, how did you embark on such an illustrious career and what advice you would have for students today? Well, there's a big difference between the way I got in over 50 years ago. Um, and uh, the reality today, uh, I just applied, and uh, to my astonishment, uh, I got a call from my mother one day saying, Ottawa's looking for you, but my, your, your father told me to tell them we didn't know where you were. <laughs> <laughs> and when the, when the Mounties came to do the security check, the whole neighborhood closed down. You know, we were mountain people in BC. It was an that. event, was it? <laughs> but I, I was really fortunate in, in what was it, six. 1968, I was uh, doing graduate studies at the University of Saskatchewan, had an interview with somebody, uh, and, that, and that was about it. And then I eventually got a call and, and joined a class of, 68, of uh, 27 people, one-third of them women back in those days, which was really quite unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, and after a year's training, which included some time uh, dealing with Czech refugees in, 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 on, a, on a training skit in uh, Vienna. I got posted to Japan and all those other places. I think today uh, you need, a, at a minimum, you need a master's degree before they'll even look at you. 
And I cannot tell you how important it is to be, uh, to have your French or your English, depending, and how useful it is to have a solid foundation in a third language. Uh, training people to, to uh, foreign affairs realized rather late that it was really, really important that, that our young officers uh, acquire beyond our two official languages, at least one other. And uh, the time taken to perfect one, another language is well, well spent. Uh, the, uh, uh, at times, uh, when they're recruiting for e either, either, uh, either immigration or for foreign affairs and CEDA are now together in the trade, de trade department, they're all in there together. Uh, you can get eight to 10,000 people writing the exam. So you have to find ways to distinguish yourself. Having some experience working abroad, which shows you can operate abroad, is really also a big asset. So if you spend a year in Cameroon or someplace like that, um, uh, th that's something that they look for too, because there are people who historically have joined the foreign service, gone abroad and discovered that they really didn't like it, couldn't cope. So, but I think um, there's no substitute for having both official languages under your belt and a third one. That's excellent advice um, and not quite what I was expecting from you, but I think it's very useful for students to know and something very practical that they can take on right now as they're studying and going through their studies. If, if I can um, say just one other thing, mm -hmm. for the longest time, Foreign Service recruited on the basis solely of academic excellence. And we ended up with an organization filled with introverts as a result. And yet diplomacy is a very public thing. And so really, it's really important to, uh, to, to show that you have either participated in student government, you volunteered, you, uh, you know, that, that you, you are not just somebody who's worrying about what's in the books. Uh, we're looking, right, these days we're looking for people who can, can go and speak in public, can negotiate, uh, can get out there and, and, and mix it up. And uh, that's a very important skill to have. Thanks. Mm -hmm. And those are things you're right that um, can be learned, but really should someone should be aware of whether their personality or their inclinations to work in that kind of environment right. um, fit with their own personal uh, goals. Um, so thank you, Mike. So our topic today, as I said, is the Refugee Resettlement Program and how this program was created. I wondered if you could just give us a brief historical account of how this program came to be in Canada and how um, it was deployed um, very well during the 1970s. Okay. Uh, well, very quickly, uh, we, we have to go back a bit to get the full thing, but I'll do it as quickly as I can. From the beginning of the Depression in 1930 to the end of the Second World War, there was almost no immigration to Canada. In fact, the Immigration Department was tucked away in the Department of Mines of all places. Uh, when the war ended, the big trick was to bring home a million Canadian soldiers, sailors, and airmen. So there was nobody going to resettle refugees or anyone else for that first year or two. But eventually, as it became clear, and I think it was in 46 or 47, it became clear that the Canadian economy was, was really benefiting from the fact that it had not been destroyed, whereas much of the industry of the rest of the world had been. Uh, there, there was immediately... A, a, a serious labor shortage. Now, it's really ironic. You bring home a million soldiers and there's still a, a labor shortage. So that says something about the, the strength of the Canadian economy at that time. 
So uh, Mackenzie King made the, his notorious statement about the, the population of Canada not going to change in its content. But he also said, very interesting, that he felt Canada had a moral duty to help out with the displaced people in Europe and that we, were gonna, we didn't have a legal obligation, but we had a moral one and we're going to do something about it. And within a month of his statement, something called the Canadian Government Immigration Mission was sent off to Europe. And over the course of the next three years, they brought to Canada 163,000 displaced people. And in fact, I'm sad to tell you that the last member of that team, Mr. Roger St. Vincent, died last month at the age of 98. So he's our last link with that time. Uh, so the, uh, the, the, the government then decided that as, aside from people trickling out of the, uh, the Soviet empire, that the refugee problem was solved and they said, in, in, I guess in 1953, we're not even going to bother to report the statistics anymore. Well, of course, along came 1956 with the Soviet crushing of the Hungarian revolt. And all of a sudden we're taking in 36,000 Hungarian refugees and a lot of other people are seeping out of, the, out, out of Eastern Europe. And so we continue to take them on a sort of an ongoing basis. Uh, Canada had decided not to sign the refugee convention that was in 1951 because of a misunderstanding about whether or not you could, uh, the, the convention allowed you to keep out security uh, risks and, and criminals. But by 1969, the country under, under the Trudeau government, the, the country was feeling confident enough, the government was feeling confident that in 1969, we signed the Refugee Convention. Two years before that, 1967, the convention had been made universal with, with a protocol that the original convention focused exclusively on European refugees. 67, it was expanded. Oddly enough, 67 Canada brought in the point system and our immigration program became universal as the refugee convention became global. The first, but up to that point, refugee policy was just people who were running away from the Soviet empire refugees, point for now, nobody else. Uh, in 69, we signed the convention and the following year, the government sat down and said, okay, we need a refugee policy and the policy will be the following. One, we will use the UN convention to determine who's a refugee, the, the, the famous definition about well-founded fear of persecution. We will use the point system, but officers are reminded that they have positive discretion and can override the, the point system. Uh, we will be now, uh, open to looking at refugees from anywhere in the world. And uh, we're going to even have something called an oppressed minority policy that allows us to go into a country before people have fled and winkle them out uh, if, they're, if they're in real difficulty. So immediately after, so that's 1970. And within over the next five years, we took Tibetans, we took the Ugandan Asians, we took Chileans and Latin Americans, and we took the first wave of the Indo-Chinese. By 1975, the government realized that the Immigration Act had been passed in 1952, which had us keep to keep out idiots, idiots, imbeciles, and morons, among other, <laughs> and was, you know, homosexuals not admitted, uh, people who live in unusual places or poverty in unusual ways are not admitted, just a way of keeping everybody out. In fact, you can go through that whole 51 Act and try and find something about who, who's allowed in, that was totally at the discretion of the minister. But in, by 
by 75, it was clear we needed something. It was a long process, a long consult consultative process with a lot of people involved. We had a really good minister by the name of Bob Andrews in, in charge of it. And so in 1976, the, the 1976 Immigration Act passed. And for the first time, the refugee definition was in the law. The, the uh, meet, meeting our international obligations was in the law as, as an objective. And more to the point, there was a provision that we would set up a formal class for convention refugees that we found in refugee camps abroad. And we had also the capacity to create what were called designated classes. So if the convention definition didn't fit, we could propose to the government, okay, we wanna help this group of people. They don't fit the convention this way, but they need resettlement for other reasons. Can we take them? And, it, and, and we actually ended up with uh, being allowed to develop three designated classes, one for Indo-Chinese refugees, one for people fleeing, still fleeing Europe, and one for people still in their own countries, okay? So uh, all that was in the, the nub of those things were in the law. In addition to which, there was about a 10 word clause that hinted that uh, we could sponsor relatives and we might even be able to sponsor refugees. So on the basis of those little words, well, my section, which was called the Refugee Policy Division, which consisted of me and one other officer, developed the selection criteria for convention refugees for the designated classes, and we designed something called the private sponsorship program. So all, and it, the changes were so drastic that even though the act passed in 76, the government gave us two years, so 1978, to get everything in place because we have to revive, have to revive everything, right down to the forms, right down to the training, right down to the manuals, the regulations, everything. Uh, and this was one of those instances of just-in-time policy because as in the fall of 1978, as the second wave of refugees from Indochina began to cross the borders in, uh, from Cambodia in large numbers into Thailand, fleeing Laos across the Mekong River the same way, and the boat people phenomenon uh, reached the point where by, the, by, I guess it was June, of 79, 60,000 people uh, a month were coming out, and a third more were drowning on the way. So it, this was, was drowning at time. Anyways, all of the pieces, the sponsorship program, the designated class, all of everything else we need were ready by December 1978, when the cabinet sat down for the first time and said, okay, We've been doing nickel and dime programs. Now we have to get serious. Uh, and they initially said in, in, in December 79, under Trudeau, the last months of the, the second Trudeau government, we'll, or the first Trudeau government, pardon me, we, will, uh, we want the immigration department to bring 5,000 people by, from, from in Southeast Asia. So that started on that. And, in, by, by, and then, of course, the Joe Clark uh, Conservatives uh, won, the, won the election, booted Mr. Trudeau out, and uh, two remarkable ministers were in the cabinet. One was Flora MacDonald, the first woman to become foreign minister of Canada, and a lawyer from Toronto by the name of Ron Atke. And both Atke and MacDonald were seized with and were extremely interested in us doing more for the boat people and the other re refugees out of Indochina, out of Laos and Cambodia as well. The, uh, 
so their first act in June, the month they took, they, they got in their ministries, was to ask what was happening. We said we've got 5,000 and a reserve of, of, of 3,000. So they said, okay, we're now committed for 8,000. And oh, by the way, there are some signs that this sponsorship program is actually beginning to take part and to happen. We'd signed deals with the Mennonites and three other churches in April. And by the end of May, they'd sponsored 1,200 people. Really quite amazing. So they said, okay, we're gonna, the government's going to take 8,000, but wouldn't it be great if private groups would take 4,000? Now, that, that's in June. I remember somebody coming from UNHCR and saying, this is very wonderful, guys, but it is not enough. You have no idea how big the problem is. It's worse than anything we've seen since the Second World War. And there's going to be a conference in July. We'd sure like you to, to do more. So again, McDonald and, and Aki went to cabinet in early July with an outrageous proposal that we bring in uh, 60,000 people, 60,000. And then it was realized that uh, Joe Clark had run on the, on, the, on the promise of getting rid of 60,000 civil servants. So the, the 60,000 number was taboo. So they, it, what came out of cabinet was 50,000. They said, we've got 8,000 in the pipeline already. So if the private sector will, will uh, bring in 21,000, the government will match, in, match it with 21,000, and that'll get us 50,000 refugees in, in, in this year. Can I pause I you was, for a second, Mike? Yeah. Um, I wondered if you could just maybe go back a little bit and just tell us a little bit more about the conflict that created the crisis, the refugee crisis. Okay. Okay. And then just briefly on that, and then also if you could just talk about how it attracted Canada's attention. It, I mean, literally was on the other side of the world. And exactly. why did Canada care so much? How did it get involved in this way? I mean, so far what you've described is a, a remarkable response, but I would love to hear how this crisis was created and why Canada cared. Okay. Uh, the, there was about, I guess, 40 years of war in what is what in those days was called French Indochina, which were the three countries that had been conquered by the French in the previous century. So that's uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. Uh, the, the Japanese came in during the uh, Second World War, booted out the French. The French came back after the, after the Second World War and wanted to uh, take it over. In the meantime, in Vietnam, there are a lot of people who said, no, you know, we're going to be our own country. And uh, the uh, communist by the name of Ho Chi, Ho Chi Minh uh, organized resistance. The result was that uh, Vietnam was, was partitioned, the north part being communist, the southern part being free, whatever that means. And for, about, for the first year, people were allowed to move one way or another. 100,000 people, mainly communist uh, activists, went north. A million people came south. And then began a war with, as the North decided, they wanted to unify, one, have one Vietnam under their rule. And there was uh, uh, a long, uh, first of all, there was a seven-year war to get rid of the French. And that, that was no sooner over than the, than the civil war started between the North and the South. That went on for 18 years. Uh, the Americans backed the South. The Russians and the Chinese backed the North. Millions and millions of people were internally displaced in the course of those wars. But interestingly, no Vietnamese, no Cambodian, no Laotians went outside the area and said, hey, I'm a war refugee. Absolutely remarkable. People were really attached to their own countries. 
they would move to get out of the way of the fighting. They would move to get out of, out of, out of a zone where, where the Atlantic government didn't like. But nobody was fleeing, running away from the country. Well, eventually the Americans got tired of the war. They lost, they lost the, the will to fight and they withdrew. And within three years, uh, the North Vietnamese had conquered the country. So that in, in April 1975, uh, Northern Vietnamese tanks rolled into the southern capital of Saigon and the, the Saigon government surrendered and, and a, a new day began. Now, 130,000 people uh, tried to escape at that time, mainly by boat, some by air, but mainly by boat. And those that, those that managed to survive were picked up by the Americans who brought them to uh, first to Philippines and then to Guam and Wake Island. Look those up, guys. And then ultimately to camps in the, in the, uh, all across the American South. Uh, the Canadian government didn't think there would be any reason for us to intervene, but in, in April, just before Saigon fell, a group of students, Vietnamese students from Montreal, showed up on Parliament Hill in quite large numbers, scared the living daylights out of the government, and a friend of mine was told by the minister, go down and find out what they want and agree to anything that's reasonable. So what, what it was, I mean, these were people on student status, really. they didn't have a residency, but they, they were worried sick about their relatives. So the, uh, the government said to them, one, we are gonna give you permanent resident status. Two, we wanna know the names of your relatives. Three, we're gonna keep our immigration offices open around the clock at seven days a week until you've all come in and given us your relatives' names, and we will try and get them. So that's what got it, it got it started. Now the reality was that we had four Canadians in, at the embassy in Saigon, and all of a sudden these uh, what were called telexes, uh, kind of the emails of the day, started arriving in Saigon uh, uh, with, so, with, with ultimately 17,000 names of, of relatives of these thousand or so students in Canada. It, the, the, and the immigration office, we had immigration people in Hong Kong. They all came in, tried to help. But the problem was that probably the last thing to crumble as South Vietnam was conquered were the border controls. And they wouldn't let people out unless they had both a passport and an exit permit from the, the government. So we were actually able to extract very few people at that time. But nevertheless, we had this list of names. And when, uh, when people fled, the first group were picked up uh, by a, uh, a Scandinavian freighter and deposited in, in uh, Hong Kong, where uh, the British put them in a Gurkha military camp because the Gurkhas are so well organized. And the Canadian embassy, without instructions from our headquarters and without so much as a buy your leave to the British government in Hong Kong, went, set up a tent, got a tent from the Gurkhas, put a flag on it and said, if you're in here, said, Canada, we're for you. And they found in, in that the four or 5,000 people that had been rescued, quite a number that either had Canadian links or, or the like. So at the same time, uh, we learned that the, the Americans had rescued all these people at sea and deposited them in Guam. You know where Guam is? It's not the end of the world, but you can see it clearly from there. Uh, the, uh, it's way out there somewhere, and uh, there was the, there were World War II military bases there, so they plunked this huge number of people there. And so our gang in Hong Kong 
up stakes and went out to uh, and, and, and took over a hut on, in this camp. And over the next couple of weeks, they moved about for about 2,000 people to Canada. Anybody who had any kind of a link was accepted. Then the American the monsoons were coming, so the Americans picked them up and, and, and dumped them in, in all these camps across the southern United States. So Canadian teams uh, out of Los Angeles for the, those on the West Coast and out of various other places uh, for the four or five camps in, in the eastern United States went in, always looking for relatives. Now, the government said as Saigon fell, one, Anybody with a relative in Canada, we're going to take. And oh, by the way, Immigration Department, we're giving you a quota of 3,000 for anybody else that is interested, and you'll, we'll, we'll consider them convention refugees. So in that, that first, between the fall of Saigon in April 1975 and the end of the year, we moved 7,000 people to Canada. Um, most would be, no approximately slightly more than half had relatives slightly less than half didn't so we got hooked into this the the, the the issue because we had students in Canada that was the original hook and the government responded very very uh, actively to the to the worries of those students I that's mean, a fascinating story yeah. it also speaks to how advocacy can really alert yeah. the government of an issue or push a government to do something um, as I'm listening to you, as I've listened to you in the past, a lot of this story reminds me of how quickly um, things moved, but also how innovative uh, policymakers were um, to respond to this crisis. Can you, and you describe this in your book quite well, but I wondered if you could describe how um, quickly the program was created and, you know, how did you manage to um, create these innovative processes and what were the challenges in doing that but also what are the um, what did that flexibility flexibility give um, you as tools to to respond to a crisis that might not be as easily uh, done today well you know in a really big crisis when the government wants it you know the civil service you know has a tendency to, to deliver it's, it's, it's a, there's a long tradition here in our case, we were really lucky that between the first wave in 75 and after which things kind of died down for a year or two, we had that, that two years to get ready. And even though there were, you know, there were, there was my boss, myself, and, 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 a, and a fantastic officer now, now dead, unfortunately, by the name of Carla Thorlison. Uh, and we were the, we were it, you know, but I'd served in Uganda. I'd served with the Czech refugee thing. I thought a lot about it. I knew I didn't want a rigid system. I wanted to flex. I, we, we needed a better framework. We needed better tools. We didn't need rigidity because you can make all the rules you want, but what happens in the world is you, you don't, I always say with refugees, you don't get what you want, you get what you can. Eh? So, uh, so what we, what we and, and the designated class idea was really a, a brilliant innovation of the time because what, with, with, for example, with the Vietnamese, uh, we, we had a small crew out in, in Singapore and another group in Hong Kong that were picking up the odd family and this sort of stuff, but they were reporting and telling us what they were seeing. And the more I learned from them, the more I realized our, our, what could be more ridiculous when these boats come in, we know that one boat in three or four doesn't make it. So when people start out, they know they've got one chance in three of survival. These are people who didn't run away during the war. 
but they ran, they hated the communist system so much they were running away that night. And the communists were really clamping down by this stage. You know, they executed 100,000 people within the first few months and hundreds of thousands more starved to death in, in various uh, new economic zones and re-education camps and that sort of thing. Uh, so, uh, what, and, and when you're when you're dealing with the convention refugee, you have, there, you have obligations under the convention that cut both ways because our decisions uh, implicate the whole world. Everybody who holds to sign the convention is, is bound by our decisions. So you have to take time. And even if you're sitting in the middle of a refugee camp, to do it properly takes at least 45 minutes. But when our gang first got out there, uh, they, 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 after the, uh, after Saigon fell, and, or just before Saigon fell, and we had that, that original target of 5,000, well, the guy who went out and did it, he said, look, look, Mike, uh, to, to, to get these people through in time, we got 12 minutes per case. And right now we're doing two minutes of talking to them and 10 minutes of, 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 uh, of filling in forms. And he said, you know, uh, it's killing us. He says, it's, it's, the paperwork is killing us. So when we designed the designated class uh, idea, we, we did three things. First of all, we said, the definition won't be the convention definition. The definition is if you're from Laos, Vietnam, and Cambodia, and you left your country after April 1975, and nobody else has taken you, and you're interested in Canada, you meet our, that's our definition. It takes about two seconds to, you know, to, to apply that. So that was the first thing. The other thing was that when we, re, when we redid the, the, the refugee system, we, we, we said the, the idea behind the point system, looking at something, can they settle successfully? Well, age, education, that's all fine, but we don't want points. We want a holistic appreciation. Look at the whole family. Look at the kids. Uh, look at, are there relatives in Canada? You know, is, and as one of the officers said, one of the really influential ones said, look for the twinkle in their eye. <laughs> you know? So we were able to, first of all, get a definition, unlike the Americans, unlike the Australians, that was cut specifically to what we were seeing there. And what we were seeing were people who were running away, who were risking their lives, who were dying in the tens of thousands to get away. And so the business of are they convention refugees or are they not convention refugees was not relevant. I mean, they'd risk their lives to get away. And so that was so that was the that was the first thing that we, we were able to do. Second, when when uh, when Jerry Campbell came back from dealing with that first five thousand and said talked to us about the, the you know twelve minutes to fill in ten minutes to fill in the forms and two minutes to talk to the person. Uh, I took him immediately up to see the deputy minister, Mr. Jack Mannion. And Mannion had run the Hungarian program 20 years before, when they threw the book away. And Mannion listened to Jerry, and he immediately picked up the phone and called somebody who was in charge of administrative matters in the department, brought him in and said, before the end of the week, we want Jerry's problem solved. So we ended up with a special, a special form uh, that, uh, where you capture the, the data of the family, tore off the bottom and gave them a stub that had the file number on it. When you went back, you filled in past medical, past security, ready to go, da 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 da, da. And, the, and the top copy became the visa, all done by hand. Uh, no typing, no duplication, and, and, the, 
And the idea was that the formal documents for landing would be done once they'd arrived in Canada at, at our two reception sites. The third thing that, 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 that happened that was, what caught us as a surprise was the way the Canadian population uh, picked up on the sponsorship thing once the government said, we're gonna take a lot of these people. And uh, in May, we had 1,200 people sponsored. By the, that's May. By the end of August, we had over 10,000. By October, they surpassed the 21,000 that the government had asked for. Well, the, the sponsorships were piling in. The, 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 uh, the lists of people coming on airplanes were piling in. And so we needed to, to, to come up with a system. We had to need to do two things. One, we needed a system that would allow us to, to get the sponsors and the, rel and, and the incoming people together quickly. Nobody knew anybody. Uh, these were strangers coming to strangers, not like Syria, where a lot of people came in because they had links and connections with Canada. This, these were Vietnamese strangers or Laotian strangers meeting Canadian strangers. So we set up a system where, uh, where, where well, uh, to, not to get any complicated, but five days before the plane took, took off, we knew who was going to be on it. That list was sent right across Canada. People in various parts of Canada, part of the matching center, would decide who was going to go to what sponsorship on the basis of, I have no idea what. Uh, and before the wheels touched down, 80% of the people on that plane would have sponsors. And then we realized that again, we were drowning in paper. And uh, so I, I, I and, and in those, those, at those times, nobody had computers, eh? You know, there were no cell phones, there were no computers, nothing like that. So anyways, but there were computers out there. So I put in a requisition for one. And, I, and, and, and a very nasty lady from somewhere in the department came and said, you know, there are dozens and dozens of people ahead of you. And if you think you're going to get a computer just because you're dealing with these refugees, it's over my dead body. So I, we were very polite to her and sent her on her way. And I, I took all, the, all these incoming telegrams and all the sponsorships and put them in a, in a shopping cart and, and went up to Mr. Mannion's office and, and said, this is our problem, sir. We need a computer. And he said, what's the problem? I said, Mrs. So-and-so says we can't have one. You leave her to me. Well, next week we had a, we had a computer, and uh, and what I and and it came with its own nerd, which was really interesting. I'd never seen a nerd before. I'd never seen a computer or a nerd. We got we got two for the price of one, and what that thing allowed us to do was to uh, well, let me tell you, I, I, I went down to see how this thing worked, and uh, the nerd tried to explain to us how it worked, and he was but I, he wasn't speaking any language I'd ever understood. And so finally, he got, he, got, he got a little bit frustrated. He went over to one of the people who were doing the matching, and he came back with a roll of what's called ticker tape. It's a long, thin tape with little dots, little holes in it. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's ticker tape. He said, know what it's for? Yeah, you, you throw it out the window for parades. Said, no. Said, Watch this. So to my amazement, there was a little slot in the top of the computer. And he stuck the end of the tape, and it went <laughs> into the computer. And across the room, a typewriter with nobody sitting at it, started to type what was on that ticker tape. And once we had that capacity to move things without retyping all the paperwork, we were able to, uh, to, 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 match, uh, to match everybody that came in. And, uh, and, and, and the real trick was we, we said, look, whatever's left over at the end of, the, of any flight, that will be a government refugee. Whoever we can get to a sponsor will be a sponsored refugee. The government will do its share. The sponsors will do its share. But the sponsors are get served first. 
So these were all kinds of things that we we did. And the, the basic system was designed very carefully over a two-year period where we, you know, we, we had our experience. We talked to the NGOs. We talked to all sorts of other people and got... We got the fundamentals with the designated classes and the, and the shape of the sponsorship system right. But then in implementing it, we really had to run and find all sorts of ways of doing it. And uh, when, Mis when Mr. Mannion uh, authorized the, the setting aside of all the normal immigration paper and blessed that two-sheet form that could be filled in by hand, would turn into the visa, uh, and, 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 and reduce the paperwork by something like 70% uh, on, on a bunch of it. The message that sent to our officers that the sacred paperwork was set aside uh, was just astonishing because then, then they understood that uh, this was a time for innovation. And there was a kind of a sense that whenever, there, when people in the field came to us and said, there's a problem, our first response to them was, what would you like to see as the solution? Uh, not to say, sit down with my people at headquarters and say, well, I've got a problem, let's solve it. We'll go back to them and say, if you could solve it, what, you know, if you could be the fairy godmother, what would you ask for? And they would then come back and say, well, we could use this, that, and then, then and we would give them that. And the ministers, uh, we, we had Ron Atke first, and then when, they, when the conservatives fell, we had Lloyd Axworthy. Ministers were extremely supportive and the senior officials were extremely supportive. And there was something amazingly exhilarating knowing that in the summer of 79 and into the winter of 80, a huge portion of the Canadian population was involved in sponsorship, if not directly hands-on, put money in the collection plate to, to support it. And, you know, uh, we, we think, at one stage that the sponsorship program touched the lives of probably a million and a half Canadians. Yeah, and this is a, we had those kind of allies. It was really amazing, eh? Really amazing. It's, it's a remarkable story. I think um, it's remarkable, you know, from, I would say, from the legal standpoint of just how innovative policymaking can be and how responsive it can be to the realities or the challenges on the ground, yeah. um, but also innovative in the way that you conceive of solving a crisis um, and I think it's a testament to like you said the public service but also the political will behind it it shows exactly. that political will really makes a difference um, I wanted to shift a little bit to um, you know how the refugee resettlement program has evolved you have seen it from the beginning but um, you know after the um, Indo-Chinese refugee resettlement movement it kind of uh, evolved into a different kind of program. And I wanted you to comment on what the program turned into and then leading up to the Syrian refugee crisis, how it became um, part of the public imagination again during the Syrian refugee crisis. So I wondered if you could comment on how the program has changed from then to now. Well, well that's, you know, that's 40 years uh, of changes and a whole series of different governments and it's interesting that the the 1976 Immigration Act and and the and the resettlement provisions of it lasted until the current and until, I mean there was the, the Canadian Immigration Act was, was 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 this 1976 Act was amended a few times but the fundamentals of the resettlement program were never touched because it was feeling that the designated classes the way the sponsorship worked the the, the structure of how 
a refugee was to be interviewed and sponsored. That stayed in place for, for 30 years, which is really quite something, you know, when you think about it. Uh, but there, and there, there were waves. The Indo-Chinese program left us with a much larger pro-refugee constituency in Canada and a much larger uh, group of people who, who cared about it, uh, both from a policy and advocacy point of view, but also from a, we want to, we want to be involved. I mean, there are churches in, 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 in Canada uh, that have not stopped sponsoring refugees since then. You know, they're, they're, they're into, the, into the 50th year of sponsoring refugees. Now, the numbers, obviously, you know, once the, uh, once we got this, the, 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 well, what happened was Mr. when Mr. Axworthy came in, he bumped it up to 60,000, uh, which allowed us to do a lot of things we couldn't have done. Really, really, we really welcomed that. But once the 60,000 was done, we were tired and the population, the, the sponsoring population was tired. And so things went down. But in the, if you look at the, the, the curves over the last couple of years, there were waves uh, of, of interest in sponsorship. Uh, that, and, and so there are peaks and valleys. Uh, the study done on the sponsorship uh, program two, 12 years ago came up with a really interesting bit of analysis because uh, the, the, two, the, two, uh, the two researchers found that uh, once they, they, they looked at, at what was happening in Canada and what was happening, they, they said, look, there are four main players in re the refugee resettlement game. This, of course, before Mr. Trump changed the American. The most important is the American government, which brings people in and, and puts them onto sponsors who only look after them for six months. That's the biggest. The second biggest is the government of Australia. The third biggest are the Canadian sponsors. The fourth biggest is the government of Canada. And after that, there's nothing but peanuts, okay? So uh, what does that tell you? It tells you that the, in the sponsorship program, we have something that is very local and very granular. It doesn't deal with anything abstract. It's that refugee family going to that sponsoring group in that community and bringing with them all their problems. And yeah, so you have that. On the other hand, the numbers are such is that what the UNHCR looks at it as one of its major assets, because it, it is the, it, at that stage 10 years ago, it was the third largest way of getting refugees to settle in, in, in the world. So it's, it's a local pro program that has an amazingly global reach. Now, so we have this, this series of ups and downs, um, ups and valleys, but, but over time, I, I think some remarkable things happen. In, in the, in, when I first came back to Canada to work in the Refugee Policy Division, it was three years after the, the fall of uh, the Allende government in, uh, in, in Chile. And the government had said, well, you know, it was going to be a communist government, so what do we care? Well, it turned out a lot of people in Canada care. And there was five or six years of headbanging between, between the, the, the people who cared and the government. And I can show you the scars myself if, if you want. But... Uh, but that process uh, made the government much more attuned to the protection aspect of resettlement and its importance. And it made them, and, and I remember at one stage after a particularly difficult session with, with a group of the advocates up from Toronto, uh, I sort of looked at my boss and he said, well, you know, Michael, they're actually pushing us where we want to go. <laughs> 
And once I realized that that was true, it became possible to work with them. Now, one of the things, but still, there was there was a new group of people came in after the Indo as a result of the Indochina program that didn't have that fundamental sense of the government is evil and we're good and that and and nothing will ever change. Uh, and what 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 astonished me when I finally uh, came back to Canada after a whole series of other assignments uh, in in the year 2000 was that there's a whole different relationship between the the people in Canada that are interested in refugee settlement and the government. There are all sorts of mechanisms for for consultation. The government listens. Government makes its decisions. But they listen, they explain, there's frequent interchanges, just as there are frequent interchanges with the UN and, and, and the other countries do it. So I think one of the legacies of Indochina was that we end up, we end up with a, there's all, there'll always be disagreements about cases or about why are you taking this group and not taking that group. But, but there's a fundamental understanding, I think, there's a much more maturity on the side of the government, people in the government, and much more maturity on the side of the people in the advocacy group, that we are in this together, and if we can work things out together, their refugees benefit. Now, I think uh, some of the, one of the fundamental changes that took place in, uh, when the IRPA came in was that the, the designated class idea was dropped. The thing about the designated classes was we would we would essentially say, okay, here's a group of these this, these are the circumstances that we're the, the definition we're going to use, and we would attach a, a a table to it saying, and these are the countries that it applies. Citizens of these countries is what it applies to. Uh, the uh, I I think governments and probably the people at foreign affairs didn't like the idea that we were naming. The the uh, the people. So now we have we have I guess two descendants of the designated classes that are much more generic, uh, and uh, and I don't think they have the punch that ours did. I mean I I I guess I take a fairly uh, militant view of the following situation: when country X is treating its so people so badly that we have to go and get them, or they show up on our doorsteps asking for asylum, we have a right to comment on their internal affairs. People say, oh, well, you know, you can't, you, you know, you can't interfere. They're interfering with us by, by making, creating situations where we have to take people that they should be protecting and protect them in Canada. So I personally don't have any difficulty at all with the notion of pointing fingers at, at, at regimes that are mistreating their people. I think the current system is a little more discreet with a kind of generic definition. I like the idea of actually putting on the shoulders of cabinet the decision that, okay, the circumstances in this country are bad. Here's a definition of what's, of what's going. Please give us the authority to deal with it. Uh, that seems to be muted. On the other hand, when you look at the Syrian the way the department and the government as a whole, not to mention the, our society, respond to the Syrian things. The big difference is technology. Uh, uh, it is un, it makes it unrecognizable. When they, when the teams, we had those teams in one one group of them were working out of a group of hotel ballrooms in Lebanon, and the other group were working, were working out of a drafty uh, 
Air Force uh, hangar in a man, they were working, uh, they would be all working on their laptops. The laptops were feeding into a server. And at the end of the day, the information in those servers went to either a servers in at our embassy in Mexico City or servers in, 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 in Manila, where the, the work that had to be done was done by the computers on the next morning when our people came back into work in the hangar or the ballroom and turned on their laptop, the work was done. Now that is amazing. It is pretty uh, astonishing. We, you know, our big thing was ballpoint pen and, and a piece of soggy paper. Uh, to see that what the, the what the capacity was to do that, but but there was some, but something was lost. And I'll t just let me tell a little, just a tiny story. There was a very bright officer that uh, with about ten years' experience that I got interested in dealing with. I've been retired for twenty years, but this guy came to my attention because he was a bit of a history buff, and so I used to have lunch with him from time to time. And I got a call from him. The year, the year the Syrian thing took off, and he said, "Look, Mike, I'm downtown doing my my Christmas shopping." It was it was October, and I said, uh, he, he said, uh, I said, "That's a bit odd." He said, "Yeah, well, I'm heading for Jordan. Uh, come down, I want to have lunch with you." So I walked downtown, talked to him, and, and he was he was going to be away for Christmas, so he's doing his Christmas shopping. And I said, "Well, listen, when you get back, I want you to write an article on it, and I want you to think hard about it now, because I, because what you're going to do is going to be different than anything you've seen." And so when he came back, after being out there for three or four months, missing Christmas with his kids, uh, he, he told me about, you know, the amazing way they use technology and, and how, for example, they couldn't fly people directly from Beirut because Beirut Airport is controlled by, uh, by Hezbollah. So they, they not only had to deal with the Jordan case, but they flew people from, from Beirut to, to Jordan and then on. Big complicated things, lots of people, everything being done by on the refugee cell phones and 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 these computers in Mexico and other places. It's an astonishing story. But he said, he said, you know, the really this is a guy with 10 years' experience. And he said to me, you know, but the best part was once we had to interview everybody very quickly, get all the basic information. But you know, we'd have two or three minutes at the end of our little session with them where we they could talk to us and we could talk to them. And we could they would ask us questions about Canada and we would tell them. And he said, it was the most wonderful experience of my life. And I said, oh, you poor man. When I was a visa officer, that's what we did. We talked to people. Uh, we didn't use algorithms. We talked to people. And I'm sure there was a lot of inconsistencies in our decisions, but there was, there was something human about it. Mike, the big thing is, is the fabulous technology that they have, where they can, uh, if you look at the recent edition of the Canadian Immigration Historical Society Bulletin, there's an article on uh, the Karens that were brought to Canada some years ago. And you, you continually hear about how the, uh, the uh, UN is, is putting the applications into our system electronically, that everything's, you know, there's human beings intervening and making decisions, but the there's no paper. Yeah, it's, <laughs> uh, it is astonishing to see how things have changed world. and how those tools have made the job a little bit different. And maybe affecting how decisions are made, which is a very important consideration. Yeah, yeah. I wondered if you could maybe, as we move to the end of our interview, um, talk about what do you think um, is uh, 
the legacy of uh, the resettlement program, what challenges it faces for the future, what things you would like to see happen with the program, having all this knowledge that you have from a historical aspect and uh, what things can be improved upon, what things we should look out for, what, thing, what advice you'd have for the government, I would say. <laughs> well, in terms of legacy, the legacy is the living legacy. When you look at how well the Ugandanese when you look at how well the Vietnamese and the Laotians and Cambodians have done, you know, I used to watch them getting off the planes in Edmonton and Calgary, and you'd get these men and women with a pair of shorts, a pair of flip-flops, a t-shirt, a little blue bag with their documents, and one kid on each hip. Uh, that was it. And, and, you know, we didn't pay any attention to their occupations. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't try and say, oh, we're looking for people with this occupation. We, we didn't know they had occupations, you know? I mean, we were very naive. And yet, and they were the poorest people in Canada for 20 years. And by the end of the 20th year, they caught up. And they are now perhaps the highest performing sector of our population. And when you look at every refugee group that's come in, they've come with nothing but hope and empty pockets. And they've only had one direction to go. So I don't think we ever lose when we resettle refugees. And I don't think it doesn't matter how exotic they are or where they, you know, how, how different the country is. Uh, our society, and our systems uh, are, are the best in the world when it comes to absorbing newcomers. That's not to say it's easy. That's not to say there aren't mistakes. That's not to say that there's a hell of a lot of suffering on, on, at the individual level in these processes. Because, you know, when people arrive in Canada as refugees, they think their problems are over. Actually, a whole new set of problems are beginning, particularly if they don't speak English or French. But the, they, they, 20 years on, typically are doing pretty damn well. And their kids are outperforming those that are born uh, sort of of the, of the original population. So that's, that's the big legacy. Uh, it's a human legacy. And, and we get these people whose attachment to Canada is profound. They're proud of being Vietnamese or Ugandans or whatever it is, but they're more proud that they're Canadians. And, 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 and the open hand that we, we, we gave them when they arrived here, the kind treatment on day one carries them through their lives and all the hardships of that. So that's one. What, what are we looking for ahead? If you told me before COVID-1, I would have had a series of very clear answers. Um, I think uh, that we're going to have to get back in the business as soon as, uh, as the health system allows. But I think that the, the medical side of it is going to be a lot more tricky. Uh, you know, early in Canada's history, we didn't screen a bunch of immigrants coming in from Ireland and a third of the population died of cholera. We, would, we have no interest in, given that I'm Irish, we don't wish to repeat that, <laughs> that kind of thing. So I, I think that that's going to be much more tricky. I think there are some, some things that we have to improve. Uh, even though there are provisions for, for uh, uh, reunifying refugees within the first year of any relatives that were left behind, one of the things that bothers me about the private sponsorship program is that it has become largely a family reunification program, and which means that our ability, the UNHCR's ability to give us cases that need immediate protection is muted by the fact that so many of those that are being sponsored are, are they're certainly refugees, but they're not the UNHCR, often the UNHCR's priority. Sometimes they are, but 
for the most part, it's family unification. And I really have been saying for the, to anybody who listened for the last couple of last decade almost, we need another channel. And we need another channel, not because it's nice to reunify his families, but because once a refugee arrives here, whether through resettlement or, or asylum, to the, you know, the asylum process, once we have them, we have them for life. So what is the public interest? The public interest is that that person get established in Canada as quickly and efficiently as possible. And what are the impediments? Well, language is one. But you know, a huge impediment is longing for relatives left behind. And people, people send money they should be spending on themselves back. They worry about it. They run up big tele telephone bills and, and, and internet bills trying to stay, stay in touch. They pine for them and it inhibits their settlement ability. Now, when the relatives get here, you know, all the usual family fights and everything happen, but people then can concentrate on the business of taking root, getting their kids into, into the right places, doing all the things it takes to, to, to build successful Canadians. And I don't know how that gets done. We've, we've had talks with all sorts of people about it, but I, I think we will have to open up a separate channel that, uh, for that and basically turn to our sponsors and because the sponsors are doing it, why? They, they, they bring in one refugee family and the next, the first thing the family says, you know, we've left people behind. And the Syrian program, because we had to move so quickly, so many, <clears throat> that happened a lot. Uh, with the Vietnamese program, uh, it, it, it moved along quickly, but it was a little slower. And, 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 you know, the rules were grab the whole family. With the Syrian thing, they were moving people so quickly that bits of people, families got left behind. And, uh, and that happens all, all the time. But if, if our sponsors are concentrating on those, and it's very efficient, it's good for everybody that they are, our, our capacity to deal with the, the ones the UNHCR said, these people really have to move, rests on the government assistance program. So in a way, the hardest cases get brought in and, and sent to big agencies, which do a pretty good job with them. But I think those are the very people that need, need to be surrounded by a, 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 a private sponsorship group. And, and the tender loving care that they provide uh, as opposed to services. So I think that that's one of the things that we, we need to fix in the, in, in the next little while. I think yeah, we, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think um, a lot of the shift in resettling or using the private sponsorship program to bring family over happened when there was a shift in the family class, when people were yes. no longer able to sponsor their brothers or sisters. I can speak from personal experience. My, my, my family uh, was largely brought to Canada through the sponsorship of siblings. And because that opportunity does not exist in the IRPA anymore, that pressure is then now put on the private sponsorship program. And there's a legitimate reason why people well, use that program, uh, right? Ab absolutely. It's totally legitimate. You know, the, and the interesting thing is, I mean, when I was director general in Ontario, one of the things that bothered me was the number of family class cases and particularly assisted relative, like second brother, sisters, you know, that, that category. The number of t cases that, were, that our offices were seeing where the people were brought in and two months later, the sponsors would come down and say, oh, we can't deal with these people, uh, put them on welfare. And that was happening all the time. 
and it was a, it, it, you know, it was a real, it was an abuse of the system. People were not living up to the commitments. And when Jason Kenney came in and saw what was going on, he, he threw the whole thing out. And then guess what he had to do? He had to uh, bump up the, uh, the temporary workers thing, because guess where the temporary workers came from? They came from those second tier relatives. And, and so, you know, you, uh, I, I, I would have thought that the better thing would be to, you know, basically sit down with people who wanted to sponsor relatives and, and look them in the eye and say, these people are your responsibility for a year. And if, if, uh, if, you're, if your sponsorship breaks up, that's fine. But you're going to still continue. We'll look after them. You will support them financially and, and, uh, and things like that, rather than simply cutting the program off because there were some problems. But it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a, you know, so much of Canadian, successful Canadian immigration has to do with family helping family. So um, I, I wondered if you, I see a picture of your book behind you. I wondered if you could um, tell us the full title and uh, who your oh, co-authors right. are. The, the, the name of the book is Running on Empty, Canada and the Indo-Chinese Refugees, 1975 to 1980. And it's the, it's the inside story of how we brought those people to Canada from the fall of Saigon to the becoming of the new Immigration Act to the and and then its full uh, implementation uh, in in the in the 70, 79, 80 period. Yes, uh, it's a fantastic book. read. Um, it's a it's a great piece of historical work. And I want to congratulate you and thank those you that much. worked on the book. Um, and I highly recommend it as a read. And also, just want to thank you so much for giving your time today, Mike. I know uh, that you have a lot of demands and. Um, that you are continually mentoring and discussing this issue, which is uh, a great service to um, the program and our country. So thank you so much. And um, yeah, and everyone please read Running on Empty. It's a great book. Okay, thanks a lot, Jamie. Pleasure to talk to you again. Bye-bye. You Bye. too. Bye-bye, Mike. Migration Conversations is created and hosted by me, Professor Jamie Liu, and produced by University of Ottawa Tech Law Fellow June Gleed. This podcast was made possible with the guidance and assistance of University of Ottawa Tech Law Fellow Ritesh Kotak, Carleton University graduate student Rachel McNally, as well as the generous support of Carleton University and the University of Ottawa shared online projects and initiatives. You can find more Migration Conversations episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube with closed captions. Thank you for listening and a special thank you for all the guests who have shared their experiences publicly.